to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, November 30th. We have finally reached that time on this show. It is officially time for the 2023 WTA Award Show, our look back at everything that unfolded throughout the course of the season and our opportunity to offer a little bit of hardware for all of the notable moments, all of the most impressive players throughout the course of the season. Of course, we'll get to the usual normal categories on this show. We'll talk player of the year. We'll talk most improved newcomer. All of the awards you'll see on the actual WTA award ballot. But then you guys know I like to freestyle. So we're going to talk who are the top next gen WTA prospects right now. We'll talk about who the most intriguing players are entering the offseason, the best rivalries from the season. If we're going to do all of that, obviously, I like to have some guests alongside of me. And joining me on today's show, as promised earlier in the week, are, dare I say, two of our award-winning guests this season on the mini break. Certainly, they are our two most requested guests by all of you listeners. That is why I am delighted to have them both for our two award shows, both on this podcast and then our subsequent ATP award show podcast as well. Joining us first today, let's start with a man who who knows he is essentially a co-host of this podcast at this point. I saw a tweet today from someone showing their Spotify rap. They say they listen to the Mini Break podcast more than any other podcast. The reason they do so is because the addition of David Kane, who joins us once again today. David Kane, welcome back to today's podcast. It's award show season. How are you feeling, my friend? I'm doing well. I'm, I was told this was a blind date, so <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be how much longer you're going to be chaperoning, but and either way, I'm happy to be here. Well, it, it's not it's not a blind date. This is a set update, if anything. Are, are, are you the nook schlep? Yeah. <laughs> it's my gift to David Kane because the thing he requests more than any other time he hops on the Zoom, and I think he asks it every time as a bit at this My point. most requested guest. Exactly. He always says, why isn't Gil joining us? Or is this the day that we will have him? Well, there's your spoiler alert. Our third guest, as promised, a man who makes – uh, so generous his time with us here at Crack Rackets. Of course, you know him as host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, host of the Breakpoint Podcast, and a contributor to all things tennis channel. It's our dearest friend, Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back to the podcast. It's been far too long. How are you feeling as we approach award season? I'm feeling good. We're at two lies so far. We have the the first, the promise of of the length of the podcast, which I won't spoil here. Uh, second was that we would be giving out hardware. We will not be giving out hardware, but we will be, uh, you know, making people feel good if they want to or bad, depending on the award. Well, I'm truly devastated. I feel bad at the start because I screwed up your intro. I should say joining us here on today's podcast, a man best described as spicy hummus with a short rib in the middle. It's Gil. <laughs> Welcome uh, back to the podcast. That's I had it all set up. It was in my notes. I forgot. Yeah, to you read forgot. It. I just I know. I was so excited to be joined by both of you. DK, that description before you get the context, it's accurate, isn't it? It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> it's what he ate for dinner the last time before we spoke. And he goes, oh, I just had this delicious spicy hummus with short rib in the middle. And I said, Gil, I have to write that down. I was like, that's if I were to describe you as a meal. And he gave me the same laugh twice. And so let the record show. That's why you make notes as you're talking. But it is a pleasure to have you both. We should have done this sooner. You are Two members of a group chat we are both in as well, one of my favorites in my phone. So again, it's the assembly of the group chat and the other member of that group chat's actually joining me on a podcast next week. So we're bringing in the Justice League, the signals in the air. It's award show season. You know where I always like to start before we get to any award. I always talk about the value of the awards. Did we have in a, se- a season that felt particularly important to the broader picture of things moving forward? And I feel like 2023 was one of those seasons on the WTA Tour, particularly given the headlines. Three players win their first slams, three notable players as well in Sabalenka, Goff, and I suppose Von Drosova, who I always think was going to be in the picture long term. I guess now spot cemented former slam finalist. You had consistency from Pagula. We had, dare I say, a pretty pretty clear formation of top players forming at the top of the women's game. So DK, I start with you. You feel some gravitas as you approach this award season? A little bit. I mean, it was a a weird year, wasn't it? I mean, it was, on one hand, yes, we did see 
a degree of solidifying atop the women's game that we really haven't seen since the pandemic. But on the other hand, most of the women really weren't all that happy about that or much anything else. So it's it was hard to it's hard maybe in the immediate aftermath of the season to look back in a celebratory fashion. But I think with more distance and the more we were able to just appreciate the results for what they were separated from the context of the sort of time tour continuum, I think we'll really understand perhaps this is the start of a really solid, defined top tier in the women's game, which is always good to see. It was so much better than 2022. I, I remember tweeting in March. Uh, I just put the WTA race next to each other. Um, I think it was the race, uh, 2022 race in March versus the race this March. And uh, 22 was Barty one who was had already announced that she was retired. Uh, Iga two, Contivate three, Danielle Collins four, Ostapenko five. I won't get I won't go further than that. Uh, this year it was Sabalenka, Rybakina, Sviantek, Bencic, um, Pagula. So that was the top five. I just remember at that point looking at those things side by side and being like, "Wow, this year I buy it." Like last year I didn't buy it, and it just felt like. Uh, a total like you were throwing darts on the board week in and week out and uh yeah this year the top players were a lot better and, and more believable yeah it really helped to have a consistent Sabalenka season for the first time dare I say ever and obviously she had been knocking on the door for so long but for her to get that win in Australia follow it up not just during the sunshine swing but to beat Iga during the clay court season that kind of cemented no no she's not going anywhere throughout the course of this season and then Obviously, you would have loved to see a little bit more consistency, maybe from Rabakina at the very top, but she put together a clear-cut top-five season. Pagula was always in the mix. You end with the strong Coco push. Things were really great at the top of the game, and then, you know, as we'll get to later on in this award show, there are a lot of really talented young players as well, not just the ones we've already mentioned. Sviantek's 22, Goff's, what, 19. You have someone in a Chinwen who would have played in a WTA next-gen equivalent, players like Naskova and Driva. You know, Fernandez making a push at the end of the year and others who are all under 21. It's a strong group of players moving forward. And even again, Sabalenka, Muhova, Von Drusova, they're all 25 or younger. It's going to be a good group. It's a fun next half decade. We'll worry about that in the future, perhaps even as recently as, uh, as soon, excuse me, as this month as we look towards 2024. But for now, let's look at 2023. Let's get into our award show. Westoff, give me some sort of award show sound effect to start. Always got to start with the headline, Player of the Year Now. I have, as always, an expansive award ballot. I like to go through the cases. I like to go through the tiers because awards matter. This is our one chance to reflect on here's what actually happened. A ballot should reflect the significance of the year. If you at all qualify, you should be acknowledged. And this is my chance to do show Gil. Yeah, but shouldn't player of the year by definition only have it be a top tier? I don't think you could be player of the year if you're not in tier one. No. So I think for this, I have two tiers. Tier one is the nominees. Tier two is just honorable mention. Players I want to talk about had notably best seasons of their career. I think Jung Chin Wen belongs in this list simply because that post-US Open swing was very much fueled by like, oh, she is going to be that good and she's a potential top 10 push. So she was the player of the year for a month. Shout out to Jung Chin Wen. Jessica Pagula had her best season, and it just feels worth noting, like, if you're looking for the best player on the year, it's not that she was ever definitively the best player, but she was always sniffing in the mix. So, again, this is like a second-team all-player of the year ballot. This is tier Well, she is according to Forbes, so I guess— Again, she's buying the WTA, according to some reporting. Um, And then Vondrosova, because, like, hey, you want to slam. The hardest thing in the do— is do that in this game, and she managed to do it at Wimbledon. She gets an honorable mention in this discussion as well. But Tier 1 is three players, and I think for most it would only be two. I include this third because I know David Kane will want her uh, in his menu of options for this award. He's where I want to start because I actually think he's probably going to zag here and make the fun case. I can see it in his face. He's feeling spicy today because Gil's here. Tier 1 is three players. Obviously, Iga Sviantek. Obviously, Arena Sabalenka. The third I threw in tier one is Coco Goff. Did I guess correctly, DK, that you came prepared to make the case for her today? I am. Okay. I am. I'm really excited about it. Well, I mean, first of all, I want to actually cross, I want to start by cross referencing our 
tennis.com, a shameless plug, uh, tennis.com top five players of the year. And we just released our number two, which is Arena Sabalenka. So no no major surprises as to who is going to be number one. But notably that half of our editorial team did pick Sabalenka for number one. And, and despite my machinations in the voting uh, process, we did, I did not manage to push Sabalenka over the edge. And I think when we first cast those votes, I was very close after the WTA finals and looking at the immediate aftermath, it did feel like more of a two-person race, but with some distance, I feel like these awards are meant to recognize, I think to your point, a degree of narrative triumph. And it's not just about, for me, I think the stats, I think if we're looking at purely stats and results, then we don't need to give out awards. We could just look at the rankings and just say, okay, Eco is number one. She had the best year overall, best 52 weeks rather. She's a player of the year. And so I think, with respect to who I think had the most memorable 2023, and maybe that's a different cat, that's a different criteria than player of the year. I do think it is Coco Golf because damned if we didn't spend all 12 months talking about Coco for better, for worse, or indifferent. It was whether she was maybe stagnating at the beginning of the year, dec- you know, uh, declining at the middle of the year, and then all of a sudden rocketing into very much this conversation by the end of it and maintaining it, not just playing as well as she did through the summer US Open, but playing well through the end of the year, qualifying for the WTA finals for a sec- second straight season. And so with that said, I think that, you know, the, it was a totally unforgettable year for Coco Golf. In many ways, it feels like she's set for life. I feel like she doesn't really have to do anything else. She ticked off every major box in terms of questions about her career, about what she's able to do as an elite player. And she did it. And she proved that she was she was the player we always kind of thought that she could be. And for a while, we didn't think she would ever be. So I, for me, she's the player there. Because when I look back on 2023, I think I will remember Coco Golf won the U.S. Open. Oh my God! Like beyond, on top of everything else, that that is tends that does tend to be the question I ask myself of this player of the year. What will I remember from this season? And I think the Coco summer, from starting at Wimbledon, going through the summer, at peaking at the U.S. Open, is really just for me the narratively speaking unforgettable stretch that I'll I'll be going back to. So for me, it's Coco. Sure. Yeah. I mean, memorable stretch. I mean, does it? I guess it's just a pretty narrow time window. Uh, we're, we're talking about a player who didn't win, uh, hadn't won a big title, you know, in the first half of the year, which is, which is fine. Um, but but what was so, I almost think it was outsized the the reaction to let's say okay, Coco first wins the uh, the two fifty in well no she she wins Washington, uh, and yes that was a two fifty. Um, for, for the women, right? And then she wins Cincinnati. Okay, there's the first 1,000. And then next tournament, okay, there's the U.S. Open. It's the first major. Yeah, it it was a very, I mean, look, it, the most magical thing that happened on tour this year was that summer. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but it, it's just a very finite period of time. If you look at the whole body of work, um, I, I kind of see what you're saying. Like, okay, why give out awards if, we're just going to look at the stats, but I do think, or the rankings, I should say, but I think sometimes the rankings, if, if they're as close as they were between Sabalenka and Iga, you could say, yeah, look, I, I get it. There's what, whatever number of points, uh, I, I think it's less than 500 uh, between the two, but let's look at reality here and make a determination. I think even beyond the year end number one stuff, there's not a lot of arguments for Sabalenka other than she made more runs at majors. Um, like everything, everything else Iga has in her favor, big titles, really kind of like three and a half to two Iga, if you want to consider WTA finals, one and a half total titles were six, three, uh, the exact ranking points number, by the way, it's two forty-five to be exact. Uh, and then, like, even the win rate, if you just treated every match equally, Sviantec won 85% of her matches, Sabalenka won 81% of her matches. DK, I don't think you like that kind of thing, that number, right? Like, because narratively, that means nothing, right? But I think statistically across the board, not only is there not really an argument for golf, but there's not even really a good argument for Sabalenka. I think there's a good argument for both to be made. I think DK made the argument for Coco Golf. I think the argument for Sabalenka is she did the toughest thing in the world. She rose to world number one, did it on the back of a legitimately spectacular season. And, you know, again, Sabalenka was seven points away, nine points away from playing in all four major finals this season. If you want to, you know, 
split hairs in different matches and the fact that she did have multiple slams it felt like on her racket and wasn't able to get over the finish line is something DK and I already discussed in our tour finals recap but the fact that she made it a real rivalry the fact that after that dominant 2022 someone caught Iga Swiatek this year someone made that discussion of the top of the game a real argument and that for the first time since she rose to world number one, there was some doubt surrounding Iga Swiatek. Now, why I vote for Iga number one is that she answered that question. And I do think I might have leaned towards Sabalenka had Swiatek not captured the tour finals. But in doing so in the fashion that she did in beating Sabalenka, in beating Pagula, in beating Goff, in beating all the rivals who, dare I say, Again, at times knocked her off the pedestal this season. Not only does Iga do that to end the year, but then the totality of the statistical dominance relative to everyone else. She has 68 wins. Next closest is Pagula at 59, Sabalenka 55, Goff 51. That's your over 52 or level wins this season. Top 20 wins, Sviantek 22, and she was 22 and 7. That's the best record of anyone. Sabalenka 17 and 10, Rabakna Goff 16 and 9, Pagula 15 and 10. But again, five win delta between her. And Sabalenka. She's got 13 top 10 wins this year. Only person in double digits. Goff Pagula, both nine. Sabalenka, eight. Shout out Kuder Matova, six and four against the top 10. Notice that this season. Uh, Shviantek, six and A real indictment titles. against top 10 stats. Yeah. Kuder Matova, six and four against the maybe top 10. So, but <laughs> Shviantek, six and two in finals. Pagula, Sabalenka, both three and three. Goff, for what it's worth, four and oh. Shviantek, 12 semifinals. Pagula, Sabalenka, 10. Uh, Goff, eight. Sabalenka Shviantek 12 quarterfinals. Garcia also got to 12, but she was 3 and 9 in those quarterfinals. Goff Pagula 11, Sakari 10. Shviantek was the best, and she did the hardest thing. She retained that world number one ranking. And then, what I always like to say, you guys know the joke, not out of the greatest of all time discussion yet. Like, she's got, what, four majors at this point. There are seven women who have won double digit majors in history. And she is on track to become one of those women. And it feels more likely than not that she will join that group. And that's a testament to what she's accomplished already. And yes, through it all, there were serious challenges, but she is still so unequivocally the most clear-cut favorite at any slam, which is her at Roland Garros. I think she can still compete at all the other slams as well for that title, though we need to obviously see the continued grass court success. I just think Iga has to be the pick because from year uh, from year start to year finish, she was always in the mix at all the biggest events. And again, more often than not, she won those biggest events. So DK, Gil, final words go to you both. Start with you, David. I mean, granted, we've had this discussion before that I feel like part of the problem with Shantek is she did set the bar so unbelievably high in 2022 that anything she did short of matching it this year was going to feel meh by comparison. And, and in, as I said last time, to her credit, she achieved a fish- Pretty much 99% of what she did in 2022, she did in 2023. I think what what I where I struggle and why I zag for Coco is because I feel like in the in the race between Iga and Arena, yes, Iga put herself in position to win many titles many times, but there were big stretches of the season where she did feel towards the the tail end of these events or where she would exit sort of irrelevant. I mean, she was smacked off the court in Australia, smacked off the court at the US Open, smacked off the court in Indian Wells. You know, yes, she was getting to these these rounds, but then exiting in such a way where you you didn't really think of her towards the end of these tournaments. And, it, and for much of the season, it really did feel like Sabalenka was the protagonist and was she going to step over the line definitively and usurp Svantec? Well, she proved she could challenge her, I think, I think what's frustrating about this conversation is that really Sabalenka is one disappointing result away from unequivocally being player of the year. But I think you can't have that many terribly heartbreaking disappointments the way that Sabalenka did. And it's, it's a season unlike any other. I can't remember someone putting themselves in that many positions to win big titles and, (laughs) and losing so definitively and so tragically each and every time short of one, you know, usually you have four bad slam losses. You don't win the slam and, and, reach a new plateau and then fall off. So I think for me, that's why it feels like it's hard to give it to either of them. And so again, like I feel like again with Iga, we talk about her French Open win and we talk about her surge at the end of the season. For me, that's not immeasurably larger than what Coco did in the summer. And I think when we, we, especially again, being an English speaking American centric podcast, I think we are, people are going to be talking about the summer of Coco more than they're going to be talking about the fall surge from Iga. And so I think that's part of why I give it to her over Iga. Yeah, 100%. And it's a good point. 
the thing about the Ega bar being set so high coming into the year, that's one of the things that I thought was was interesting about how this all played out, though, because since as soon as she became number two, she didn't lose another match. Like it was, and she looked like a different player. Well, she right? lost to Kudermatova in Tokyo, no? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. But that okay. way, that's enough, to, that's enough to make you never lose a match again. You lose, <laughs> yeah, yeah, lose exactly. 48 hours against Kudermatova, you're like, that. F this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, so that was that was a second match quarterfinal loss in Tokyo, and then she, then she went on the big winning streak at the end of the year. Uh, I, it just seemed like as soon as the expectations were gone and the weight off her shoulder of being number one, it was rocket ship. Um, the, but yeah, the, Sabalenka's got four slam semis this year, and Iga has one. Okay, it, but aren't the it's other two losses, think. what, round of 16 and quarters? Yeah, but this is the standard. I understand that, like, quarterfinal at a major, awesome accomplishment for basically everybody. Mm. But not really for Iga. I mean, I just think statistically, again— Ika was never absent anywhere in the calendar. She was good in every portion of the season. There was never an inconsistency. Goff lost first round to Kennan at Wimbledon. Like, Ika doesn't have that loss on her resume. But I, I think ref- that's I know- part of the lore for me, the player of the year lore. Yeah. It's not. It's less about the fact that she was consistent all year. It's the fact that she was at that low point in the year and everybody was talking about her. And then yeah. everyone was talking about her and- when she turns it around. It's not even about, for me, posting a consistent season year to year because uh, from – rather from start to finish. Because for me, that would the person who had the most consistent season, I would argue, is Sabalenka. But it's hard for me to give her that ultimate mantle because it was, man, (laughs) Rolling Arrows, Wimbledon, US Open. Those were three very winnable matches for her. And she did not turn that around. And I I do, the fact that she kept coming back is a good thing, but it was any one of those wins, any one of those losses would have derailed her season in the past, so. Yeah, and last thing, you're right. If if the slam, if the major thing was Sabalenka with two, I mean, this this would this be wouldn't be a conversation. <laughs> not a conversation. So yeah. she she had her chance. It was a really fun player of the year race. The most fun we've had probably in some time. And again, I'm gonna go Shviantek. I believe Gil's going Shviantek, DK yep. going with Coco Golf. That's award number one. Got to boost or- the engagement for the replies yeah. that are inevitably going to come from this section uh, of the podcast. Wouldn't have it any other way. Award number two, we're going to go on the other side. Who's the biggest disappointment from this season? And we're not going to break this down with nearly as much depth as we did player of the year because, again, it's very much a subjective choice now. You don't have a long sure list of disappointments? To- no, I do. I have three tiers. I have 12 <laughs> names. Don't you worry. I have a long list. I'm going to run you through the menu of options here. Tier one should have done more. Tier two could have won slams. Tier three, window closed. Let's start there. Tier number three, Carolina Pliskova. Hate to say it, I come out of this season, I think the window's closed. Sloan Stevens, hate to say it, like, again, I'm not saying you're not going to be a top 100 player moving forward. I'm saying I don't think you're winning a slam ever moving forward. And again, these are players who are on the fringes of that for a while. I put Danielle Collins in this tier. I have Paula Bedosa with a question mark next to her as well, just to really hurt DK's feelings. But that's tier three of disappointment. Again, that's one menu of options. Tier two. Could have won slams. Legitimately, window was open. Couple points go differently. You win a slam this year. I have Rabakana on this list. I have Jabur on this list. I have Ostapenko on this list because I really do think her level was high enough at those majors. Certainly, we saw it in that Shviantek match. I have Madison Keys on that list as well. That's menu item number two. There, I saved the spicy hummus with short rib. Tier number one should have done more. This is Barbara Krachikova, Ludmila Samsonova. Belinda Bencic, and I threw Anastasia Potapova in tier number one's options as well. Again, <laughs> the award ballots. DK's making a face at me. You I don't try to have be accurate. my choice. Oh, I don't, don't have, have my so choice. So he goes off the menu. Typical Gil Gross. Give me your option. The, that short rib was not on the menu, man. I, <laughs> I made that up on the spot when the waiter came can you over. Just, can you make the hummus spicy for me? Just like just uh, yeah. put a little chili oil. They just had hummus on the menu, and I totally ad-libbed. I'm like, make it spicy, put a short rib. You put sriracha Uh, in it, and you're trying to sell yourself (laughs) as this modern cuisine. Anyways. Uh, Caroline Garcia. Ooh. what? She'd probably be a tier one. Make the case. She she wins the WTA finals. She enters the year, uh, if my memory serves, world number four. She finishes 20. Uh, I think it's a bit of an inflated ranking because she won 
where she didn't win any titles, but she made she made a couple of finals at small Twelve tournaments that tend to. That's as many as Iga and Sabalenka, just three and nine. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. So, so that's the stat. She didn't beat top players. Yeah, exactly. So, like, like all year, like all year, yeah. she didn't beat top players. So, and I think the reason why it's a particular disappointment to me is uh, twofold. One, she gets to number four in twenty eighteen, and it seemed like mentally it was a lot for her to deal with. Okay, she falls off the map, regroups, uh, makes some makes some changes with her team, and has this big 2022. Okay, cool, she's back, and the thought is she's going to be ready now to to handle it this time around. Uh, not to say that it was completely mental that that she went downhill this year, but I mean, whatever it was, the 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 confidence going down, the play style not really working, players playing her smarter, uh, it, it just. To me, I thought this time would be different, and it wasn't. The second part of this is she's a breath of fresh air stylistically, uh, in my opinion, just because she doesn't play like anybody else. And I think sometimes she's way too extreme with with some of her offensive ways and how desperate she is to steal time and uh, take the ball early. But uh, like all that aside, I really enjoyed her 2022, partially because of how she plays. I, I wanted her to to remain a top player, and she didn't do that. DK, you have the finger up. I do, yeah. Well, because first of all, I mean, you brought it up, but I feel like we saw this movie before. We saw that how well Caroline Garcia can play with no pressure, and how much worse she plays with pressure. And second yeah. of all, part of the problem, part of the reason why I wasn't super optimistic about how whether she'd be able to carry this form into twenty twenty three is because she fired the coach that she had been working with. During the W, like pretty much in advance of the WTA finals, Breton Paré, and won that tournament, yes, with plenty of momentum and, and and played really well. But the fact that there was quite a bit of upset and who was the real coach of that situation? Is it is it Breton? Is it is it her father? And I, I believe they did reunite during the spring. But, you know, once you lose that momentum, and I think, again, to your point, to play the style that Garcia plays most effectively, you need to be hyper confident. And, you know, once those losses started to pile up, how could you be? So granted, this is an imaginary award, but for me, the premise of it is that I feel like I would have had to come into this with expectation. And so I had no expectations of, of Garcia, much in the same way that I didn't have any Muguruza the year before when she won the WTA finals and felt and, like this is. And just to add to that, she still finished number one in hold percentage amongst top 50 player on the tennis abstract Again. stats leaderboard. And <laughs> no, rough, here's what I'm saying. podcast for these stats, I'm no, telling you. here's what I'm saying. Garcia being what? She's right now in the live rankings to end the year 20. That feels more correct to me than the four we saw from her last year. That feels more of a regression to the mean than anything. This feels like the tier of the ranking she belongs in that 13 to 25 range. And because, again, there is so much aggression and uh, it is so aggressive. And sometimes she catches lightning in a bottle, but other times it struggles a bit more. I should have added this context at the start. I'm not that disappointed by anything this year. It was a pretty good year. We had some real battles at the top. Again, it feels like we had I really I, everyone who made that top eight by ranking in WTA Tour Finals made sense to me. I had no objections to any of the eight in the field uh, because again, Chabur made a Wimbledon final, so her being in that eighth spot kind of made sense to me. But that's why when I offered my menu of options, look, there are some tough choices there. Like could have won a slam is the best possible disappointment. It means you were knocking on the door. Window closed was a little mean. Again, should have done more means those are the expectations we have of you. Speaks to your caliber of player you are. DK, you going to go on menu here? Or are you going to go off the menu like Gil? I mean, Potapova is an interesting choice because she was someone who was playing really phenomenally I was well. Thinking during the of swing you when I put her on the list, and really fell off. And granted, I think is in the is in the is probably in the fourth Bedosa category of just like in wedded bliss. Literally, she just got married to Alex Shevchenko, ATP player who is playing a lot better. I feel like she kind of he kind of stole her mojo a little bit. But I mean, for me, when I looked at disappointment, it was it was Rubakita. I mean, she is the most talented player that didn't win a slam this year, and so I think for her. And we certainly had every opportunity to win that Wimbledon title. She won, the, I believe, the first set against Jabir in the quarters. And that felt to me like a no-brainer that she would win that one and somehow lost control of that match. And you have to think if she wins it, she probably would have figured out a way to win that tournament. Um, and just spent a lot of the back half of the season complaining, which I feel like is not healthy for someone who's trying to – not healthy in terms of – career prospects mentally if it helps you know her to process these things fair enough but i don't think it's great for focus i think we're seeing that that's you know 
was someone who was ultimately not a tremendous factor uh, at the WTA finals. And I feel like the players who were able to put, set aside their grievances played the best. Um, and so for me, that was, it was, a, it was a disappointment because she was someone who played one of the best matches of the year in the finals, of the Australian open, and certainly had a shot to win Wimbledon. And for me is very much a factor at all four slams. One Rome, you know, could have been a factor at the French open got sick. Um, so for me, that was just a, a bummer not to see her continue her ascent. Yeah. I, I, think that's a fair argument to make i mean again she was so close and given how well she played during the sunshine swing it was a pretty disappointing u.s open showing it felt like from rabakana just that she was never i mean again injuries down the home stretch of the season certainly played a role in that we didn't see that much of her in the summer but yeah that she ends the year probably fifth in my opinion, in terms of if I'm ranking who had the five best seasons, I think I'd go top three of Shiontek, Sabalenka, Goff. I'd put Pagula for just given the consistency. I thought, again, maybe Rabakina's highs were higher, but Pagula's highs were close enough that her consistency from start to finish a little bit better than Rabakina. I get why that's your pick. I don't knock it. I think I go with Krechikova. Just because I know injuries were part of the factor, but like, doesn't she look at that Coco Golf Australian, uh, excuse me, U.S. Open title, or look at that Von Drusova Wimbledon title and think those should have been mine? Like, with how well I was playing in the first third of the season, if someone not named Arena or Ego was going to win a Slam, I should have been on that list as well. I mean, again, the inconsistencies throughout the course of the season. Given how highs the high were that she was right there with Sabalenka, those back-to-back matches they played in the Sunshine Swing, I think my choice is Krejcikova. I would have liked to see Samsonova been a top 10 player this year, but I still think she had a pretty good year overall. The analytics loved Keys. You know my thoughts on Keys. You know why I had Benchich on this list as always, but shout out to her, pregnant, expecting her first child, winning in life. That's all that really matters. Yeah. I'm going to go Krejcikova for my pick. Gil, final words from you, then DK, you last. I, I just – I like to look at the year-end ranking as just a, at least a, a guide here. And I, I think if I were to say, okay, what kind of season would be a success for Rybakina, especially because outside of the Wimbledon title, it, it's not like she absolutely crushed it last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think year-end number four, I would have been like, that's – it's pretty solid. That's kind of what I'm looking at, looking for out of her. And Krejcikova, if you factor an injury in, what does she finish? 10th? Like, I guess I'm just surprised that in both cases, it's, it's players who kind of finished where I thought they should have in the rankings, uh, where the pick I went with Garcia, I mean, I would have thought, okay, I, maybe you're not four, but can you stay in the top 10? Yeah. So I get, that, I get, that, those are my, that's my final. Fair. I guess for me, thought. it's because Krachikova falls into two tiers. Should have won a slam with some of the level we saw from her this year, given what we saw in some slam finals, and probably could have accomplished more because she's a two tier. That's my pick. DK, final thoughts to you. I think I would say, welcome to women's tennis, baby. I feel like that's the problem. <laughs> I feel like if you're at ATP number four and you don't win a slam, it's like, well, you're ATP number four. That's amazing. And I feel like for the women, there is still, given the lack of a, equivalent of Djokovic, whoever, Nadal, Federer, like you, there is always an opportunity. And if you finish that high and don't win a slam, it is a little disappointing. So I think that's part of it. I, and I actually, it's interesting to bring up Krejcikova with Garcia, because I feel like those are two players who are just, I think, ultimately not mentally equipped to play top tier tennis. I think they're players who are going to get on rolls and play a funky enough game that they can, you know, build some momentum. But I think what we saw from Miami through pretty much the end of the season, I feel like she started, Krejcikova started to pull back, pull up rather after just a really rough six months is that she, you know, felt like she could hang with the top four and then kind of felt like she, in her heart of hearts, felt like she couldn't. And then dealing with the mental repercussions of that. And so, yes, she probably does look at some of those slams and say, I should have won them and and sees, you know, opportunities like Pagula being on the cover of Forbes and be like, I should be a star. You know, I've won a slam. Why aren't I on the cover of this magazine? And I think how she deals with that disappointment and betters that is the difference between whether she'll continue to improve or continue to stagnate. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to our next category. This will be a rapid fire category. It's best rivalry. I've got a menu of options. Again, I imagine I know what you guys are both going to pick, but tier two, honorable mention, golfers Pagula. Fun best American race throughout the course of the year. Obviously, golf wins the U.S. Open. She kind of secures it, but it was open heading into New York. Mukova versus staying healthy, honorable mention. Samsonova versus consistency, 
honorable mention. And then always an honorable mention in this era, Ostapenko versus Self, one of the best rivalries we have in all of sport. Tier 1 contenders for the best rivalry, Sabalenka versus Rabakina. Certainly was fun in the Sunshine Swing. Goff versus Shiantek. That rivalry may define the next decade. Or the tier number one choice, which I imagine you'll both go with, Sabalenka versus Shiantek. DK, we'll start with you. Your pick and why. Shiantek Ostapenko count as a rivalry if Ostapenko wins all the matches. It's there he is. Here he is. Unfair to pick At that one. At least you're sticking with one <laughs> tack from start to finish this year. No, I mean, I think honestly, objectively, that my favorite rivalry would probably be Sabalenka Rybakina because I I love that crazy tennis. To see two players hit the ball that hard, that consistently is is really impressive. And yes, contrast is fun, but you know, if you're if you're two players doing some the same thing, trying to outdo the other one in that way, to me that's could be just as intriguing. So, and, and again, that AO final, the one that I'll go back and rewatch from start to finish is really phenomenal. So that's my favorite. I, I actually agree. And it's not Ooh. like, yeah, yeah. We're really hitting, you can go now. I sounded too, <laughs> <laughs> did I sound too surprised? Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought that the matches were just better than like, I, I know maybe you're supposed to say Sabalanka Shviantek. The matches here, I think were better. Um, and yeah, like it is kind of a same style thing, but I don't know. It, there, there's something more dynamic and more athletic going on compared to, I don't know, Kvitova, Pliskova. Like, I, I feel like this is at another level of, oh, they're, they're moving. They're actually like, yes, they're hyper aggressive, uh, but they're playing extended rallies. They're able to do that. And, and the serving, I think on the men's side, there's so many players who are serving at a super high level. You can you can get jaded with it, but I love watching these two serve and serve well, um, especially against each other. And uh, it, it has that kind of that tension thing where anytime it's fifteen forty, it feels like a really huge deal. Um, they play four times. It's two two. The AO final was great. Rebecca had the revenge storyline at Indian Wells. They play twice after the U.S. Open and split. So I feel like that was the best. Adding DK versus Iga Nation to my honorable mention, best rivalry of this season. Um, I, I My pick is Sabalenka Shviantek just because I think that's the next three years in a nutshell. I actually, my second pick would be Goff Shviantek, and it's a little American-centric, but that's the rivalry that always gets the most heat. And it's because Iga has owned Coco Goff for the most part. And I do think it's worth noting, like, Yes, Coco won the U.S. Open, which, again, she got the slam. She got the major off of her back. Now she doesn't have to worry about that pressure moving forward. A lot less pressure for two than there is for one. But she's still only beaten Ego once. And it's just like what makes that first slam so amazing is it just feels like she has not been able to climb that Ego hump yet. And, again, I think that could be the rivalry of the next decade because they are just going to face each other time after time after time. And for all intents and purposes, Iga is the better version of Coco. So my favorite rivalry is Sabalenka Sviantek. The best rivalry coming out of the season, the one that I think defines it, will be that Goff Sviantek rivalry. So that would be my vote for this category. DK, you look like you have a thought. Yeah, I'm reticent to call that a rivalry still because it was still – yes, it was a definitive win and, yes, it very much – catapulted uh, Coco to winning that slam. I don't think she wins the US Open if she doesn't beat Iga in Cincy, but she still beat Iga in Cincy, you know, a very quick court. And we have not seen Coco really come that much closer to beating her elsewhere. And so I I think the more that she can make it competitive on other surfaces and other courts, I think I'll be more convinced of it. But I I do think long-term Iga will continue to have Coco's number unless Coco really radically shifts her game. Fair enough. Well, let's move on to the next category then. This will be another quick one. Top five next-gen WTA prospects right now. As we look back at this 2023 year, who are the best 21 and under players we have in the women's game? It's worth noting, Iga has finally aged out of this category, turning 22 this year. How I define the top prospects, tier one, I think you're going to win slams in your career. Tier two, I think you're going to be top 30 for the better part of your career. prime. Rear. Excuse me, that's the word I'm looking for. Yes. <laughs> tier three is you're going to be in the mix for a long time, but we're going to do tier three as a rapid fire at the end. I don't need your thoughts on it. Here's tier one. Goff has to be in it. Obviously, she won a freaking slam. I have another tier one prospect. It's Jung Chin Wen. She's the last player I would put in tier one. Tier two, players who, again, I think are going to be top 30 or better throughout the course of their prime and maybe are even flirting with tier one status in the future. I have five players in this category. Naskova, 
Kostyuk, Mira Andriva, Layla Fernandez, and Clara Tossin. I'll start with you, Gil. What do you think of my two tiers? I have all – those were the six players I wrote down. Okay. Uh, oh, no. I, I left I out. Seven. I did not put Kostyuk. Okay. I did not put Kostyuk. Would um, you include her upon that, further review? I, I Not – no. I don't think so. Ooh, uh, okay. I mean, maybe – wait. What, what did you say exactly? What was the – Tier two was is – prime of your career, you're going to be top 30 or better. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Okay, I'll give Kostyuk that. Um, I just – I guess I don't see her yet as a top – 10 prospect um and and maybe i just need to see more but uh, not a lot is really jumping out to me um with her as much as some of these others towson has uh very very special power off of both wings and uh, the height to have a really good serve she's had some injury issues she needs to get a little bit more athletic i think uh andreva it's her age and her ranking and her consistency and her movement it's like She's a brick wall, an absolute brick wall. She never misses, and that stands out. And Niskova is kind of in the in the Towson category. This is really, really high level power. Uh, the the technique is super clean uh, for for Niskova. Um, I like her back end on the line as well. Uh, Zhang has the power too. Um, we don't need to go much further than that. Fernandez is the interesting one because I think if if you want to say that she is not going to be back in the top ten. I could hear arguments. I just don't think her serve is going to stay this bad. And I, I do think she's a really good baseliner. I, I, I feel like she figures out how to serve at a higher level. And from there, she can kind of get back to, to a, a top 10 status. Maybe not, never, probably never top five, but. Yeah. Look, DK, if you have seven players in your generation, all within the top 30, top 25, your generation is doing well. And again, for listeners at home that may have forgotten the list, tier one for me, which is they're going to be flirting with slams all the time. Goff, Chin Wen, tier two, Naskova, who's going to, he's the highest tier two for me. I think she could leap into tier one with a good 2024 season. Kostyuk, Andriva, Fernandez, Tossin, your thoughts on that list, everything Gil said. I mean, I'll add that at this point, you've probably heard Linda Noskova's name more on this podcast than you've ever seen matches of her played. <laughs> I think we're still, I mean, but it's hard not to get that hype, especially I think in light of the the Fervatovasans that I feel like we were initially <laughs> exposed to. I feel like then seeing Noskova, it's like, oh, okay, you're technically a lot better. And so I think that's part of why we kind of um, talk about her in that way. I mean, I think with Fernandez, a huge problem is that I think, you know, she's someone who very much benefited from being new and unfamiliar and, you know, riding a wave of confidence. And I don't know if she's really been the same since she was injured, you know, last year with the foot and has had a full year pretty much of being pretty healthy and has not um, gotten close, you know, to being back in that sort of top 10 form or Grand Slam final kind of form. Um, yeah. Really nice, really, some really cool sponsors. She just partnered with uh, Legos and obviously as the Lululemon sponsor. So I feel like she's navigating sort of the ins and outs of her career pretty well, but I don't, I do put her a little bit with a Kostyuk, Kostyuk technical improvements, but still not a lot of power and mentally maybe a little bit, not all the way there. I mean, obviously there's a lot going on off the court, but you know, opportunities against Benchich earlier in the season. You feel like, oh, these are matches that you should really be winning and things weren't as simple for her. But I I, I would give honorable mention to Ashlyn Kruger, really powerful young American. But otherwise, yeah, that's pretty much the list um, in that order. Tier number three for me, Lady Dajstein, Diana Schneider, Ashlyn Kruger, the Fruvertovas, Osorio, Avanisian, Perry, Volinets. Again, others you could get into as well. But yeah, it's a really promising group. And it's No love for Raducanu? Oh, uh, Amaratakanu, another name. You know what? I didn't want to do that to you guys because I'm already <laughs> going to break the 45-minute promise, and so we can save that conversation for a different time. This one we're going to do very quick because the criteria for newcomer of the year, you make your top 100 debut, all these different things. It's just different than how we may view newcomer in the broader sense. The nominees for this year, Stearns, Noskova, Avanisian, Andriva, Diana Schneider, Emma Navarro might have cracked the top 100 before the start of the year, but she belongs on this list of newcomers right there with Stearns, in my opinion. We'll go quickly through this one. Gil, your pick for newcomer and why? This one I I don't have – wait. Yeah, I actually didn't write this down. Is it – how new do they have to be? I think it's just um, top 100 debut. Well, then we'll start with DK. Yeah, but leave I, I that in others. because I, I want. I wrote everyone, the others down. I, I missed want that everyone one. to know that this short rib needed a little longer of brazing. <laughs> I mean, just saying. Can, 
can we give it to no one? I mean, who were who the nominees again? I mean, um, yeah, Stearns, Noskova, Avanesian, and Driva, Diana Schneider. I mean, I guess it would be Andreeva, although worrisome the way that she took some of those losses, you know, was in a winning position against Coco. It, it's crazy to think at a time, there was a time in the season where Coco Goff was seen as a winnable match for Mira Andreeva, that Mira Andreeva was just really peaking and Coco was so flatlining that you felt like, well, this is a match that Mira can really win. She's not going to get overpowered by her off the baseline and really, you know, fell off the wagon there and then was up a set and four one against Madison Keys at Wimbledon, loses that one. So that's worrisome. Young, yes, but a lot of times these sort of mental collapses follow players through their careers. But I think objectively it would be Andreeva, but overall, I mean, it's not the most, you know, inspiring crop of newcomers. You know, it wasn't like a, a huge, you know, Grand Slam quarterfinalist, you know, something that really you can hang your, a result on which you can hang your hat. As a- Who had the best moment at, out of the group? Because I feel like that's the tiebreaker, right? If, if nobody's obvious here, it's I mean, it's Andreeva in Madrid, right? No, I think it's Naskova because the way we now talk about her, I'm just like talk about her. (laughs) Yeah, I'm ready for her to be tier one. Like for me, she's the most notable player where it's just, oh, I wasn't familiar with your game. I am now. And you're who I'm watching for a potential. You know, she's my Arthur Fees on the yeah, women's I saw side. her in Paris not play that well against uh, yeah. uh, an increasingly sicker Robot. Junior French Open champion. I know. <laughs> yeah, Whoops. give her time. I'm just saying you're right. It's not as inspiring as perhaps newcomers have passed. But, again, that's why I wanted to do the next-gen category, to speak to relax. Even though it's not a great newcomer of the year, there's a lot of talented young players. Now you see the methods to my madness and why we had those conversations paired with one another. Let's go to most improved then next because I think this is an interesting category. And certainly you look at the actual nominees. Wang Xinyu, fantastic year for the 21-year-old from China. Same for Ju Lin, who became a top 50 player for the first time in her late 20s. Katie Bolter's on this list. No disrespect to her winning her first title, but go look at that draw. I mean, it's a credit to her that she made a big jump, but come on now. I don't hate Jasmine Paolini as an actual nominee either. I'd probably go between her and Wang Xinyu and give the real award to Wang Xinyu. That said, my most improved tier two features Wang Xinyu, Julin, Paolini, Pagula, Mukhova, Potapova, Navarro, and Stearns. For me, three tier one candidates, and these are the ones I offer you, David Kane, first. Coco Goff, Marketa Vondrusova, or Jung Chinwen? Who's your most improved this year? I don't want to give it to Sabalenka. I feel Ooh. like, I mean, who I think who was the most, who most impressed me with their improvements. I mean, like, yes, Coco played a lot better, but I don't know if she like radically improved her game. I mean, I mean we certainly talked about her game improving, but I think ultimately from the US Open, it was really just about her playing the game that she already had to the best of her ability and it, it paying off and being confident. But I think Sabalenka, technically, tactically became arguably the most consistent player of the season. And that was not something that we ever thought possible from someone like her. The serve was firing all year, did not have any big, you know, hiccupy messes, you know, didn't really have a signature bad loss. You know, if, if it's, you know, to giant killer Kudamatova on grass in the middle of the season, that's not bad, <laughs> evidently. So I think that for me, I was just most impressed by her rise to being a consistent dominant force i mean the the list that the wta put together that's just laughable <laughs> it's a it's a bad list isn't it i like i know who put it together too because i can <laughs> I, I can smell those names and girl <laughs> well i i mean i i get i get what what they're looking for here and like it, it's kind of just top player avoidant uh right. it, it seems but um i almost think if you're going to be top player avoidant maybe like shout out Kirstea, right? Who sure. saw that coming, right? Yeah. Lynette out of nowhere was resurgent. I would have never guessed that Magda Lynette would do what she did this year. Uh, but I, this is actually where I kind of wanted to give Coco some love. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just Me too. especially especially not having her as, as my player of the year. I, I think just the, the mid-season improvement that we saw. And yeah, like it, it wasn't as radical as some people wanted to make it out to be. But she moved back a little bit further on return to make more balls in play, which she should have been doing because she's so fast. Make the return in play, scramble from there. Um, she, I feel like she was flattening out her serve more and just squeaking out, you know, three, four miles per hour that she always had in her and she wasn't using it. And she just needed somebody like uh, Brad Gilbert, I think would be the creditor for this one to just be like, hey, serve hard as you can. Let's go. Um, and then the last one was 
seemingly just taking attention off the forehand, just depressurizing it. You know, I mean, that that's all he did. He did. He didn't change the forehand. He just stopped focusing so damn hard on it, and that helped her. 1,000% your argument resonates with me. Coco Goff has to be on this award ballot because to David's point in the player of the year argument, what she did in New York, what she did throughout the course of the summer, and by the way, just some cleanup from earlier, DC was a 500 for the women as well this year. That was one of the big things about it. Uh, I think, Gil, earlier you called it a 250 just, again, to clean that up. Like for her to win that, play really well in Toronto, play really well in Cincinnati, and then freaking win New York as well. Like, that is the jump from Tier 2 to, no, 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 I won a slam. I was a Tier 1 player. I was in the player of the year conversation. Yes, Fiontek retained that world number one ranking, but again, Coco Goff put herself in the mix to be in that conversation for the first time this season. That leap is the toughest leap to make. Sabalenka had flirted with that tier before, and while her consistency was this year at a different level than ever before, I had seen this level from her. I'd never seen it from Goff. So I would put Goff in my most improved. DK, you get the final word on this category. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know if we've seen this, if we saw, I mean, I guess we did see it in back-to-back slams from Sabalenka before, but just, I don't know the, the way that she, you kept expecting a letdown and we never got one. Okay. And the fact that the, the game held up the way that until it did. The semis, until, until semifinals of majors. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. But it, an improvement, <laughs> an improvement of a sort. <laughs> If no, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think I think she deserves love in this category. Yeah, I, I I agree with Gil. We're eyebrowing up. You were. This is again power of the eyebrows on you, DK. You've been outvoted. She and is our, ganged uh, up on. Yeah, most improved <laughs> four, player. Four to two. All right, last two for you again. These two we're going to go through quickly. Comeback player of the year. I actually think this category was nailed by the WTA. Vondrusova, Mukova, Svitolina, Suwe, uh, and Pavlochenkova. You want to throw Svitolina uh, on that list? She's on it already. And what she obviously, how quickly she returned to top 25 form, ridiculous. You have to go Von Drusova. She won a freaking slam. She has to be on this ballot somewhere. That's my pick, Gil. You're shaking your head in agreement. Yeah, that's my pick too. I mean, th- this is how it works. I mean, there. first of all, this category, I know we've kind of shat on the last couple categories. This category is great. Uh, An there's a lot of, of riches. Yeah, there's a lot of great options, a lot of players who... I mean, got healthy this year, like Muhova and Vondrosova, who, you know, we were hoping would get healthy. And Svitolina, complete aberration. But yeah, it kind of goes back to, you know, if you win a slam, you you get this award. It's kind of how this works. DK? Yeah, I'm interesting to bring up Svitolina, who actually, when I think about it, I, not a, not a bad argument for most improved because I mean she's someone who has come back playing a totally different style mm-hmm. of tennis and granted she didn't play throughout the the rest of the season but when she was on court from you know that that summer from Roland Garros and Wimbledon just a player I never expected to play that way and that well against those opponents I mean just phenomenal but um yeah you would love to give it to a player like a Pavlyuchenkova who came out of it you know came into the year unranked was a former Slam finalist and you know does what she does to make the quarterfinals of Roland Garros but it, it has to be. Objectively, Bondrusova. Um, just no other way about it. I agree. All right, unanimous decision there. Well, then, last award, maybe the best for last, and this gets us towards the offseason. Most intriguing player entering the offseason. You can follow one player, their developments. They ask you for input as well. You get to be a part of the team. Who is that most intriguing player for each of you? I'll start with you, Gil Gross. Who are you picking and why? Well, my joke answer is Diane Parry. <laughs> Can she get good? I'd She's love fast. that. She moves to spend the offseason smoking cigarettes. Oh, oh. And- <laughs> there's there's a lot there's Finn a lot to that. like. There's yeah. a lot to like. She volleys well. She serves like John McEnroe. She slices her backhand. Tier three next gen prospect. Big enough. Yeah, I mean, let okay. Anyway, so that's my that's one of my answers. Uh, look, I'm I'm intrigued by Jaburit Slams. Like this has now become a major, major thing is, is she going to retire with a zero or a one or maybe more? Probably not. Right. But, you know, when you make three major finals in a span of two years and, you know, they, they go like they like they went, I think that becomes a really interesting question. And I think at majors, she's going to be someone where each and every one, especially because she's not young, by the way, uh, every time feels big. Every time is do or die. So I think Ons is my pick for that. In terms of just entertaining, we, we touched on her before. I still think Layla Fernandez is one of the best watches in the in the game. And uh, 
what we saw at the end of the year, you know, glimpses of the best version of Layla, I think it would be massive, major, great if we got more of that. All right. DK, your pick. You want to spend the offseason with the Fernandez family? I mean, <laughs> via Condios with that one. But um, from a distance. Yeah. I, I mean, the spending, literally spending the offseason is an interesting. Do I want to spend uh, evidently an offseason dancing throughout LA with Sabalenka? Do I want to be getting my nails done or on the beach somewhere with Ostapenko? Um, who is most intriguing? I mean, I mean, there are arguments to be made that Osaka is pretty intriguing. We were seeing her practice. How will she, you know, fare as a new mom? Angelique Kerber also coming back as a, as a new mom. How will she, you know, uh, two players who have historically played very well at the start of the season, will they hit the ground running? The Jabir one is interesting as well, because I mean, not only do, is she not young, but she's also someone who I would imagine is kind of eager to start a family. And so I don't know how much longer she wants to keep playing i don't know what kind of work she can do over the offseason to fix whatever happened at wimbledon i mean she already has a sports psychologist so the advice that maybe i would give would be to hire another one or hire hire more have a, have a psychological team i mean maybe you don't want to fire the the one you're you know loyal to but uh, <laughs> it's tough to really suggest a an improvement there i mean i guess i mean obviously i think we, we would want to see like a split screen of sabalink and shiantek and how they're both tackling because you have to think both of them have the other in mind as the one that they're chasing because they each have something that the other one really wants you know that that awe-inspiring power from Sabalink and that just sort of mental toughness and consistency from Shvantec just makes the two of them the front runners coming into next season yeah I go Chin Wen I've talked about her a bunch on this show again need to get her in somewhere in a category here you lose Win Facet and yet she ends the season so strongly all the traits are there. Moves so well for someone who's so powerful. If she's injur- uh, if she's healthy from start to finish, I think she finishes 2024 top 10. So I just want to see what are the machinations of her offseason. You're going to karaoke with Chin Wen? Yeah, and again, doing other things in life as well. So it wouldn't be the worst offseason uh, to follow along. Last one, this is a bonus category, and it's going to be a very quick bonus category. Grade the year, 2023 WTA season. You can oh. use a number. You can use a letter. I'll start with you, Gil Gross. A minus, uh, mostly, mostly pretty, pretty good. Uh, I, I thought there was consistency at the top. Was there a lack of maybe like show-stopping matches towards the end of big tournaments? I would say yes. But in terms of at least the top players playing against each other and having good storylines in, in that respect, I think it was a great year from that standpoint. I was bored in Florida with my family. I was watching the Sabalenka Golf U.S. Open final. It was better than I remembered. I enjoyed it as a rewatch for what it's really? worth. Really? D- yeah. Okay. <laughs> DK. Well, I mean, once the- it really turned toward golf, it was. I mean, it was a party for the for the people on Arthur Ashe. I don't know if the quality was phenomenal. I mean, listen, I'm old. I was watching tennis with the Williams sisters and Kim Kleisters and Justine Ennis, so it's hard for me to give a season like this an A. Um, maybe a B plus, and then that's the on court, and then I feel like the off court. Everything that happened off court. I mean, I, I was talking to a, a former colleague and feeling like when we were growing up watching the sport, we weren't always we weren't so concerned with sort of the the intrinsic the, like the existential threats, you know, on the fu- on the future of the sport. You kind of just the things yeah, everyone merrily rolled along. And this is like we feel like there's something always kind of in the back of our minds like, is this sustainable? What's going to happen? What changes await us? You know, and so that's it's made it sort of an. Um, anxiety producing view because you don't quite know what's all happening behind the scenes and how that then affects what happens on the court. I mean, I would argue that again, that like what happened in Cancun was as much a function of everything else outside of the, the matches that actually influenced the results. And obviously, you know, the credit of those who rose above that challenge, but it was quite a, a challenging week um, that, that no player deserved to, to go through. So it's maybe round that down to a B, B minus, but um, I, I do think we're at it. We're in a good launching pad for next season i think we're in a good we're in a good position if everybody you know stays the same all right i'm gonna go that's a good point that's a good point about the cancun stuff and the the organizational stuff where it's not just cancun there have been a couple of moments this year where you're thinking all right what's what's the plan here like how is this making things better and and what does this mean for the future yeah i would go a minus i think with gill as well I really like where we're at from an on-court standpoint. I really like how the next three to five years stand out with the product, with the players, just where we are. Again, organizationally, you're right. Maybe you do ding it half a grade and move it to a B plus from there. A third of a grade, excuse me. But 
I'm happy with the product. And I think first and foremost, the product has to be good to worry about the future and to be able to sell it moving forward. And I really do think we have stars of every kind of nature moving forward. And that's a really good thing for the game as it continues to grow. That said, there's your 2023 WTA Award Show. Now, we will be back tomorrow with our ATP Awards. Same awards handing out, same crew then. So I'm going to ask them to hold their plugs until next time. You know where to find Gil. Certainly, you know where to find DK. A thank you to them both. I will let them get one final word and start with you, Gil. Any final thoughts here that you didn't get out? We will see you tomorrow night. That's what I like to hear. DK? I'm so happy it's the off season. <laughs> yeah, all right. I like to hear. Well, thank you to you both. A thank you to Westoff, who has what sort of a job to do, DK? Oh, he does a f***ing editing job. Day in, day out. Oh. Makes it all possible. Thank you to him. Right, Gil? You agree? Just a f*** of it. Oh, I love to hear that. He'll love something to hear else that. we have in common. Yeah, I love to hear those <laughs> as well. So thank you to him. A thank you, of course, to our dear friends at Tennis Point as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane and Gil Gross, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host Alex Gruskin. Gentlemen, what do we tell our listeners? That's the break. That's the break. I was going to say, you're not going to say it. Don't be insulting, Gil. And we will see 30 seconds of dead air. Exactly. We will see (laughs) you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Das Vidania.